This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. All right, hey everyone, and welcome to Ages and Icons. I'm Mike Crisologo. And I'm Gina Bucci. Hello. Hello. And we have uh, we have a big guest today. Someone sure you were do. you were really excited about. Someone who I was really excited to <laughs> to, to meet to on meet. a professional level. I have met him on a total geeky fangirl level, and have embarrassed myself on two two occasions. Um, that man is my favorite writer, David Sedaris, and Mike got to interview him. Yeah, I, I was very lucky. It was a great. Great interview. He's such a good guy. Um, I felt bad because originally it was supposed to be a in-person interview in which Gina could have joined us. Uh, unfortunately, because of scheduling, uh, it ended up as a phoner, which was still great as far as an interview, but uh, not so much as far as Gina. Yeah. Well, don't feel bad, Mike, because <laughs> when, remember when you told me and I went, oh, oh, Yeah. And I, <laughs> you leapt across your desk almost. I was like, what? And just that response means I probably should not be interviewing people <laughs> that I feel this way about, you know? It's just, it's too much. And I, who knows? I probably would forget to turn the camera on. Um, probably. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, it's it, yeah. a little overwhelming. And part of me was actually relieved. You know how I discovered him? My you, high school teacher. Because I was not, um, I was just, you know, obviously very uh, distracted all the time. <laughs> Big class cloud. And, um, but uh, he said, you know, this is a writer I think you have a flair for English when you decide that you're going to focus. And here's a writer I think that will will do it for you. And he was right because of two main things that, um, that really worked for me. One is his comedic, uh, the comedic aspect of his writing. Uh, which is very witty and and uh, pointed, and uh, the other is that he writes short stories, and yeah. that really works for someone with ADD. <laughs> and um, so um, I love that. And uh, I've actually met him a couple times in uh, book signings. Uh, the first one was uh, a bit heartbreaking for me because um, I was a huge fan, and uh, you're gonna think I was really naive, Mike. I brought like five. Five yeah. <laughs> four. Usually, I don't like it when you bring multiple Barrel, copies. Naked, dress your family, engulfed in flames. Yeah, four books. Um, <laughs> oh, me talk pretty one day, and um, he <laughs> he just looked at me. He was like, "Put those aside. Give me one." And I and, and I was like, <laughs> "Okay, sure." And then um, my friend, who was a casual fan at the time, Mike, just casual, okay, had only read like half of one of his books. He really took to her. She's Greek and his father's Greek, Lucideris, and uh, he was fascinated with uh, Greek Toronto culture. And I had nothing, had nothing to contribute. And I was <laughs> looking at her. I basically, like, for that whole, and he spends a lot, lot of time with uh, yeah, book signings yeah. with people. So expect to wait in line for a long time. However, you will get a good five minutes with him. Yeah. If he likes you, of course. He did not like me. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was hurt. But he loved her. And I remember looking at her for, like, that, uh, that whole time, which felt like five minutes. Maybe it was a little shorter. Just looking at her kind of with, like, a rage. I, <laughs> I think she said to me that I looked mad because I was I was like ah I can't believe he likes her yeah. not me but um, I've since gotten over it I can, can I ask he's just a shy guy and that's all it is yeah can I ask I don't want to open old wounds but I <laughs> from what I know of him he often will sign somebody's book in a very creative manner with a really funny right. sort of drawing or uh -huh. or a way of, of signing it did he do that funny you? you should ask Mike 
not for me. I got a simple. Um, I got a simple. Thanks for coming. And my friend, the casual fan. I repeat. At the time, now she's a, a full time fan. Um, she got like a whole paragraph oh of um, backstory. Some a couple Greek words and um, lovely to meet you, <laughs> Teresa. I did not even get my name. Lovely to and um, yeah. Funny you should say, oh, Mike. I'm yeah, so no, sorry. I'm not bitter about that. I didn't hear okay. anybody mention in any of the things I saw just a casual, normal autograph. That's so funny. You might be that might be the most original thing he's ever done. Oh, yeah, just okay. a regular oh, autograph. Is it worth something? <laughs> I'll never just, sell it. Maybe I'm trying to make you feel a bit better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this reminds I, me. I do feel a lot better because I, he's a shy guy, and people who geek out and fan over him. I mean, any artist kind of feels that way. It's it's very yeah. hard to take that in, you of know, course, when. Of when people treat you like you're otherworldly, and I'm sure that I did, <laughs> right away. You could just see the massive smile on yeah. my face approaching. This is someone who's gonna freak me out. And, so. and it, it reminds me of what happened with the interview because I felt bad because I knew you would really have loved to have been mm-hmm. there and or been on the phone with them. So, um, but you know, David is hilarious when you talk to him in person. And this book, I've re- been reading a lot about this new book, Calypso, that he has out. It's out now, and. Um, I, unlike you, was not a big David Sedaris fan going into this. I knew of him, I respected him, but I didn't read a lot of his work. So I read a lot of his work before the interview and to prepare for this, and of course, the new book, Calypso. And I became a a much bigger fan because of it. But Calypso is really, um, it's in a lot of ways a little more of a mature read than uh, some of his earlier works. You could, he's 61 now, and a lot of the book deals with aging and just issues around aging with him and his family and, and his father, who, as you mentioned, Lucideris, is like 95. When you say mature read, do you mean more somber? Not more somber, but I think it's... Um, I'm, I mean, he's 61 writing this book. He's not... 40. Yeah, but he's always talked about mortality. I, I know. Uh, I, I think there's certain a, things a were hitting him while he was writing this. Like, there's yeah. a there's one story. This isn't a spoiler, but there's one story where he sees all these seniors on a beach, and he realizes that within a decade, that's going to be me because I'm 61 now. I'm going to be, you know, in my 70s in a decade. So, and we talk about it in the interview. Um, so there there's a lot more reflection on aging and and uh, as you mentioned, mortality. From what I've read about. Uh, people who love David Sedaris have been saying there's a little bit less wackiness in this than there may have been in earlier mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, uh, as far as fans of David Sedaris go, I've heard nothing but universally amazing reviews uh, for Calypso. And in this in this interview, he also uh, this was interesting. He talks about how he feels that his generation, so people in their 60s now, boomers, I guess, are um, wh- probably the first. I think the first generation to actually they still have their parents around. And yeah. so they're entering their senior years and their elderly years, thanks to modern science. Their parents yeah, people are, are eating better. a lot we of them, their more. parents are still alive, and this is yeah. a new thing. This The world has not experienced this before. Yeah, and he mentions that in the interview, that mm. you know I could be in my mid-60s and my dad's still alive, and like, so, like that didn't happen for his dad. Right, my mom you know, is in her late 60s, and her mother is still alive, yeah, 97. Same with my dad and, and my grandmother. So it... It's it's a unique thing, and and I don't think he ever thought he'd be in his 60s and caring for an aging parent. So that's mm-hmm. another sort of added dimension to his life now that maybe wasn't ex- wasn't as present in previous years when he would be writing. Mm. All right. Well, here's Mike's 
funny, very funny interview with David Sedaris. And if you're if you get easily offended, I would say that uh, you will be offended <laughs> yeah. by this if you're one of well, those people. He's not offensive. Sometimes he he might drop a potty word. Oh no, there are lots of people that take issue with with his work and his interviews and things. But we won't talk about it because <laughs> it's all love today. Love yes. for David Sedaris. Here's Mike's interview with David Sedaris. Enjoy. How are you today? Great. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Um, well, uh, I know you're in a rush, so I want to get right into it. Congratulations on Calypso. It's, uh, it's such a great read, so um, I just wanted to say that right off the top. Oh, thank you. Um, it's interesting because at Zoomer, uh, the magazine is sort of geared towards the 45-plus age demographic, like the boomer generation. And so, and you deal a lot about uh, aging in Calypso, and you discuss it for yourself, for your siblings, for your father. Um, and I guess the first thing I wanted to just ask you about your perceptions when you're when you're sort of going through life and, and things come up at you and, and they come up as ideas for stories, for essays, if that perception has changed over time for you, what you find interesting and what you want to write about has changed as you've you know gotten older over the last 20 years of writing? Well, I mean, I, I mainly you know write about my life and things that happened to me, so I think that writing about getting older was just a part of it, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that I... I mean, I mean, what was it? But I didn't sit down, you know, specifically thinking that I would address anything, you know, mm-hmm. that wasn't, didn't occur to me. But I think one of the things that did occur to me when I was writing it was how, you know, in the days of your, uh, you know, your father would probably die, you know, when he's sixty-seven, you know, and you might be forty. Right, mm-hmm. and then you know, you'd get on with your life. But I think, especially if you have an adversarial relationship with a parent, and because people are living longer now, you know, that it's possible to be, you know, I mean, my mom, my father's ninety-five. I mean, my father could die when I'm like, I don't know, seventy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it kind of deforms you in a way, you know. I mean, it's one thing to have those adversarial relationships and to have them finished and, and out of the way by the time you're 40, you know. Yeah. But to carry it well into your adulthood, you know, to be somebody's child well into your adulthood, uh, that's a new thing, mm-hmm. really. Well, absolutely. And um, some quotes in your book sort of uh, jumped out at me, in particular in Leviathan, uh, the story of Leviathan. You talk about sort of walking around the Emerald Isle, the part of it that there's a lot more senior citizens in that area, and, and it looked more like a retirement area. And you're saying it was almost like, I think the word you used was chilling, thinking about how <laughs> you and your sisters and, and brother will be, you know, that, those ages, maybe in like 10 years or so. Not even. Yeah. You know, like eight years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, the way it's written is entertaining and such. But I mean, um, although I guess when it comes to aging, is it something you embrace, or is it something you sort of, you know, half embrace, half struggle, or just sort of come to terms with? Well, I mean, it, you know, you, there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, I, I think the thing to do is, you know, to. I mean, often I'm when I see like a. Let's say a mother who's wearing, who 
says, oh, I borrow my daughter's clothes all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And so the daughter's like 30, and the mother says, everyone thinks we're sisters. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> maybe there's a point, and you say, well, I had all that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I was young, and I had my time to do that, and, you know, now it's on to something else. Um but I don't, I don't mean you have to give up, but I mean, I think the fear is, my fear is always like, am I dressing too young? Mm. Right? Now, to me, like skinny jeans, which I don't think look good on anybody, <laughs> I, she wouldn't catch me dead in that, you know, or a baseball cap turned backwards on my head, you know, like mm. none of that. But I have gotten kind of outlandish in my dress over the past few years. <laughs> and so, like, I bought a shirt when I was in Japan recently, and it has a, you know, it looks like a white business shirt, right? But it comes to my ankles. (laughs) (laughs) I was getting ready to, I was wearing it to the theater one night, you know, because I was doing a show, and I was waiting for my ride, and I said to the, to the woman at the front desk of the hotel, I said, do you think this is too much? I had a jacket on over it, you know. <laughs> do you think this is too much? And she said, well, that's the style. And I said, who have you seen wear this? Like, who? <laughs> Name one person. And she said, well, okay, well, you know. I said, it's not the style. It's my style. Right. But... I guess my fear is that I think, and well, am I too old to wear a shirt that comes down to the ground? I mean, no one's going to tell you, right? Right. Um, well, no, that's what, I have a boyfriend named Hugh. Hugh wouldn't tell me. <laughs> but, um, I think, but because when you're old, I mean, I always think this would be the perfect time to rob a bank because right. somebody would say, what did he look like? He had gray hair. And that's all they would say. <laughs> because all people with gray hair look alike to young people. Right. right? Yeah, actually, I was going to mention that. I, uh, I saw that you had mentioned that, the robbing a bank thing uh, in the past. And I was going to ask you about that because um, it, it, it raises the question of, I mean, d- I know you're you're 61 now. Do you is there a point where you feel like, hey, you know, I, I need to sort of maybe reinvent myself or, you know, just sort of adjust a little bit? Like you mentioned, wearing the long shirt, and am I too old for this? Um, I mean, again, I, I think, um, like on, on the one hand, like I don't want to be stared at, mm-hmm. right? Unless I'm on stage, then I feel like you're on stage and people bought a ticket and you owe it to them to, you know, to dress up. But when I'm walking down the street, I don't want to be stared at. Um, but, like, I think a shirt that goes to the ground looks great. <laughs> it looks really great when it gets dirty and when it gets tattered and all that stuff. So, how do you balance that? Like, not wanting to be stared at by, yeah. you know, Wanting to like do your thing, I suppose. That doesn't answer your question at all. Uh, (laughs) Well, I mean, if you robbed the bank wearing that shirt and had the gray hair, I wonder which people would focus on more. They'd say he had a long shirt on. Yeah. They wouldn't. Yeah. They wouldn't know what. But I was never, I mean, it's not like I was ever this great beauty, you know, who, on on a morning mat, you know, like. Oh, I used to walk into a room and everybody would turn around and look at me, and now that doesn't happen. Yeah. It, so I think that would be really difficult, 
you know, mm. to have that kind of taken away from you. Because that's got to feel great, you know. Oh, but, but you know what? If you're famous, you're still going to walk into a room. People are going to look at you. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? You're, I, obviously, you're still packing uh, packing theaters for readings and such. And everybody always talks about how wonderful they are. I haven't had the pleasure of attending one. But it, it, it's an interesting thought because I know your audience always sort of, I, I feel like, it's skewed younger. And I'm curious now if you, what sort of relationship you have with an audience. Are they aging as well or do you attract a new audience or is it a mix of everything? Well, one thing you always need, if you're going to survive, you need to be in classrooms. I mean, if you're going to survive as a writer, mm-hmm. you need to be in classrooms. So, my, you know, my stuff is taught in high schools and colleges and yeah. stuff. So, so that's good. So, I don't know. I mean, last night, the show, there were people, there were teenagers and there were people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. I, it was all, and it's usually that way. I feel like if you're in a theater, then your audience, if your audience skews older, it's because the ticket was $70, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But if you go to a bookstore and it's free, or you can get in for the price of a book, that's when you really notice um, younger people. Yeah. Because, you know, again, if you're 18, I mean, there are, you know, I meet teenagers who come with their parents, but, you know, that's a certain kind of teenager whose parents are going to spend, like, you know, 50, 60, 70 bucks on a ticket right. to bring them out at night. Um and and I get a lot of letters from kids who had to write papers on me and, you know, or people who wrote their thesis on me or something like that. So, so really that's, but that's what you need if you want to vampirically um, suck in a younger audience. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And it's so interesting because as you've noted many times, I mean, you write about your life. You're not writing uh, fictional stories where somebody says, I hate that story. You know, it's a character they didn't like that you invented. This is you and your family. So how does it feel to have these kids studying your work in school and, and responding to it either positively or negatively? You know, it's funny, it never occurred to me, ever, ever occurred to me that that would happen, you know? Yeah. And I feel bad in a way because I I think it's harder to enjoy something if you have to write about it. Yeah. You know, when I think about all the things that I had to read when I was in school, we had to write a paper on, then it becomes like a chore. Yeah. But I met a teacher the other day, and he had his students listen to part of one of my audiobooks. And then there was a discussion, and one person said, I I mainly feel sorry for the old lady. And the teacher said, what old lady? And they said, the one they got to record that audiobook. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> I guess. But, but a lot of times what I hear from, I mean, I remember there was uh, when Raymond Carver, his first book came out. I found it at the library in, in Raleigh. And all of a sudden, writing seemed possible to me. He made it look so easy because his sentences were simple and uh, every one of them had like eight syllables. And, you know, he would say he went to the door, he opened it. He looked down at his feet. 
he thought for a minute. Uh, he turned around. His wife was standing there naked. And you think, well, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and, and you can't, you know, I mean, you, I mean, it takes a while, right? You have, to have a, you have to have a story. But I thought, gosh, he didn't use any complicated words. He didn't use any punctuation that I don't know about. Uh, I, I bet I can do this. And, and so that's really flattering to me when kids will say, you know, or a teacher, you know, that they read something by me and then it started them writing, yeah. you know. Um, now, uh, Calypso sort of runs a gamut of topics from your personal family history and, and interactions to the gastrointestinal virus that uh, you had on a plane and, and, and your relationship, as you mentioned, with Hugh. So uh, I was wondering, I know you mentioned actually in Calypso that there's certain things about Hugh that you don't write about mm-hmm. um, unless he told you it was okay. But in general, are there things that maybe you don't like that are sort of off limits from your life or maybe didn't used to be off limits but now are or vice versa when it comes to your writing? I mean, I don't write about sex a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's one thing I wrote in this book that I really struggled with and it's when I was talking about how Hugh and I don't discuss what goes on in the bathroom. Yes, that's right? exactly what I was thinking, yeah. And then when I said I had that in my mouth five minutes ago, and then I kept that in because I thought so many people in the audience are going to be able to relate to that. Yeah. I just know that they are because <laughs> whenever it's something like that and then you feel like ashamed of or whatever, right. that's the thing that everybody does. Right. That's the thing that everyone can relate to. And it's interesting because usually when I read in a theater, you know, I have it so the lights are out and I cannot see the audience, right? Mm-hmm. And, but when you go on a book tour, the lights don't go down. Right. So you're reading in front of an audience you can see. And I read that story the other day, and for the first time in my life, I saw the audience respond to that line. And there were, you know, people in their 70s and 80s and 20s. I mean, all everybody in the room. There wasn't anybody who was like, ew, or, um, yeah. Yeah. No, it makes it. It's not even about the sex. It's about the like you mentioned, uh, how our comfort levels with each other and how it changes in different scenarios. Okay, so we're gonna get uh, right back to the interview, but we're sort of coming up on a, another section of the interview uh, where we talk about a few different things with David that uh, Gina wanted to address before we move forward. Yeah, it could uh, come across as a little heavy for some people. I mean, in Calypso, he talks about his sister's death. Um, by suicide, asphyxiation, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he gets into detail in the book. He also talks about it in this interview. And uh, for someone who myself have, have gone through I've gone through a similar experience in my family, um, I appreciate the hitting this topic head on and addressing mental illness because I um I I I I don't I really try my best to combat the stigma out there because when there's stigma and there's silence, um there is an improvement and because um, people can't get better if there's shame surrounding this illness uh, and, and it affects everyone and everyone's family. So um, um, it's so widespread. And I, as I mentioned earlier, um, I'm a big fan of comedy and uh, I love when this is addressed head on in a comedic manner. 
uh, in this in the book uh, in the interview too he talks about how his sister Amy who I love and we did not talk about today yeah, Amy, Amy Sedaris, Sedaris is yeah. the best uh, such a funny funny actress um, she went to go see a uh, it's called the spirit world and she went to go see a medium yeah. who um, talks to to talks to Tiffany in the in the spirit world yeah Tiffany is the sister who had committed suicide right yeah. and um, I mean that's just one of the stories but uh, this is probably when you were saying that the book maybe seemed more mature because he goes through this topic he does and, and it's peppered throughout there right. are as you mentioned specific chapters devoted to it so uh, not solely but m- the majority of it but he does talk about Tiffany throughout to your point about like how we can't stigmatize mental illness you know he he likes to talk about the details of his sister's suicide and and how she was found and mm-hmm. such because he finds that um, removing that veil that cloak of like secrecy or, or shame or whatever lets people sort of see it for what it is and once you see things in the light you can treat them for what they are yeah or you can at least offer your support and your help yeah. and um so you know um that's just my my feeling on it and i feel that um the best way to combat darkness is to open up a window and spread light. I, I know that sounds cliche, but I really, really believe that. So he gets into that, and it's it's heavy, but it's really rewarding, I think. So this part of the interview is great. And then at the end, Mike asks him about um, being uh, stories about uh, meeting Canadians, which you would think would be, oh, this is going to be nothing. No, 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 no. So Darius has got a great take <laughs> on Canadians. So stick around for that. It's pretty awesome. I wanted to ask you as well about you talk obviously a lot about uh, your sister Tiffany and uh, and her suicide in this book and it, it's first of all I have to say the, the description I won't ruin it for anybody who reads or hears this but uh, the, your description of your last encounter with her um, I I think that was a tremendous thing to put in there, uh, and uh, so congratulations on that. I think that's a tremendous thing to write. But um, you have this amazing line. It says, doesn't the blood of every suicide splash back on our faces? And I, I feel like just in the wake of the last week, you know, we have Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, and, and it's sort of come back into the public consciousness uh, a little bit, you know, dealing with people with those tendencies or, or um, feelings. And so I'm just, I know it's a complicated thing. There's no certain answers, but is there anything you've learned in your dealings with the subject that, you know, it sort of help you understand it a little bit better, what people are going through? Gosh. Well, I mean, that, you know, when I wrote that story, uh, the, um, the spirit world, mm-hmm. uh, it, I just kind of hit a wall with it, right? And it just wasn't... And then what happens sometimes if I'm working on something, I hit a wall, and then I say, well, I'll just rewrite what I've got so far, and then I rewrite what I've got so far. So then you've got 10 drafts that read. So you've written it over 10 times. So your first, let's say, 10 pages of your story or eight pages move right along, and then wham, it hits a wall, right? Mm. So it's kind of silly to do all your rewriting on your earlier you know, in the first umpteen pages, if you're going to hit that wall yeah. every time. And then I thought, okay, well, I'm going to throw away the last page I have here, and I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go to this point, and then I'm going to do try something new, right? So I didn't mean to write about the last time I saw Tiffany. Mm-hmm. I did not mean to do that. And I just sat at my typewriter, I mean, at my computer, and I wrote that. And I thought, 
am I really doing this? And every time I read it out loud, I think, I can't believe I did this. I cannot believe that I'm the person who did this. Um, But I thought it was important to put in there because... You know, people who have had, like, somebody in their family who's mentally ill, they all relate completely to that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, there comes a point when, I mean, I I was at the start of a 40-city tour, and I knew that if I talked to Tiffany, uh, every morning I would wake up thinking about this conversation, and all day long, and every night, it would be the last thing I would think of before I went to bed. Because that's what it was like to talk to her, you know? I mean, it was like, it was just like a bomb going off in your life, you know? And I guess I thought, well, we'll do this later, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the later never happened. But, I mean, I think... The people that I've spoken to, so many people who have had somebody in their family commit suicide, and and I think people who don't understand think that, you know, if you had done or said this one thing, then it would have changed everything for that person. But if somebody is mentally ill or if somebody's depressed and they're not being treated for it, there's nothing you can do. There's absolutely nothing. That I don't think we don't understand that depression. We don't understand that people who aren't depressed. I mean, I might get low, like I don't know, once a year, twice a year. I might, you know, sit around and feel sorry for myself. I then I just go out and spend eighteen hundred dollars on a sport coat, and I'm fine. You know? <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you were really a depressed person, there's it's just blackness. I mean, when people describe it to me, and it's terrifying, you know? Terrifying. I mean, one of the things, you know, Tiffany's not the only person in my family who's mentally ill, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I mean, it's hard when you write about your family and there's things people don't want people to know, and I understand that and I respect that. But, um, you know, somebody in my family takes their medication and, you know, tried everything to try to get Tiffany to do the same thing. And, you know, but if somebody won't, you know, she didn't want to be mentally ill. Yeah. And, but, you know, who does? Of course, yeah. Yeah, no, I thought you handled it beautifully. Uh, the the talk of the last time you saw her was a very brave thing, I think, to put in because I agree with you. Some people might take issue with it or say, how could you do that? But that's the point. And we don't know how to react. And the uh, the part about the plastic bags and if you're going to use a plastic bag to fix it, uh, uh, asphyxiate yourself, which one do you choose? Which logo is on the bag? You know, so it just ended added a really great levity to a really horrible situation. So I, that was my favorite part of the book. So congratulations on that. Oh, thank you so much. I um, yeah, I, that's another thing. Like when I'm on stage, you, what you don't want to do ever, ever, ever is show any kind of emotion on stage. Or that's what I don't want to do. Yeah. But when I get to that. You know, when I read, there's a point in in the in um, now we are five where I'm with my dad and and my sisters at a farmers market in eastern North Carolina, 
said, we leave, and we walk out, and I say, why do you think she did it? I, I, I just, I mean, I, I have to think of something else. I have to take myself out of my body, or it's just, I, I would just would sob. It, I don't know why that line, and then the, you know, Tiffany having the bag over her head, and I mean, on the one hand, I can see how that I'm a terrible, disgraceful person, right? Because I'm not affording someone the dignity of privacy, right? Like, here I've got Tiffany putting a plastic bag over her head, and but you know, that's what suicide is. It's not this pretty thing, you know, it's not this. I mean, I've worked at a I didn't work. I, I spent uh, 10 days in a medical examiner's office in Tucson. I mean, in Phoenix, Arizona. And, you know, there was suicides that came in, and there was a kid who committed suicide with a shotgun, and his head was just a scrap of flesh, you know. I mean, I think people think that you just, there's this little dainty little hole in your head, and that it is, it is ugly. It is, it's... It's dirty. It's it's, and someone's got to find that body. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, I know that you uh, you have to catch a flight, so I just wanted to ask you very quickly before you go, since you are uh, in Canada at the moment as as we speak, and you're going to be in Toronto tonight. Um, if you have any particular fond memories of Canada or, or, or Canadian audiences that you've been in front of over the years. I wrote something a couple of years ago about Chinese food. I don't like Chinese food. Okay. <laughs> I just don't like it. I, I don't know why. I just don't like it. And I read something in Ottawa, and a woman said that I was racist. And in Canada, you have to respond. Like, if you're on stage and somebody calls you a racist, you have to respond to that person. I don't quite understand. Your producer can do it for you. Right. But um, so I had the producer respond because I just don't see how how uh, I, I think I should be entitled not to like Chinese food. Sure. Um, and so that always made that made me wary. That happened a couple of years ago, and so whenever I read anything now, I think, oh gosh, am I gonna, you know? But. Uh, Somebody, gosh, what was it? Asked me that. Um, hmm. Asked me that question last night, but I was talking about. Oh, I mean, there's something about Canada that I always think of when I is. I was in Toronto a number of years ago, and I went to get a haircut, and I, I, I was the only person in the barber shop, and. And so the guy says, where do you live? And I said, oh, I live in France. I was this is when I was li living in Paris. And he said, so what's that French pussy like? And I said, what? And he said, what's a pussy like there? Right. So we got a lot of around here. You know, we've got a lot. <laughs> but, you know, barbers do that sometimes, you know. But I've never, never had a barber like this. And I kept trying to change the subject. You know, and I said, well. <laughs> Uh, I said, well, you know, there's a good health care system in France. <laughs> 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 he just kept going back to it. And I think, plus, because we always think of Canadians as, like, so polite and yeah. well-mannered and stuff. <laughs> 
it was just like the absolute opposite of what I thought. Uh, like this morning I got up and it was really early and I thought, I'm going to go out and take a walk. And in a lot of cities, you would think, well, I don't know. I don't really know the area and is it really safe or whatever. And I thought, I'm in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there I'm thinking, the worst that's going to happen is someone's going to talk to me about <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, I guess on that note, <laughs> I hope the rest of your time in Canada uh, is better than that, that barbershop and the, the Chinese food debacle. <laughs> um, Chris, can you give me, uh, Mike, I'm sorry, yes. can you give me your home address? My home address? Yeah. Obviously, it's, uh, 19... I had to cut that short because we can't give Mike's address away on, on the air. But, uh, Mike, you know what? You were a little hesitant to give your address. Personally, I would have just thrown out everything. My social security <laughs> number, my blood type, my credit card. You take it all, David Sedaris. I know. I wasn't hesitant in, because of David Sedaris. I was just a little caught off guard. Well, like, yeah. Who... You know, yeah. Like, I mean, I don't think David Sedaris is a bad person or that he's going to do anything wrong with it. It's just I've never been asked by an interview subject for my address. And, and I assumed home address later on in the office when I was telling people about this. They said, well, maybe he meant work address given you were interviewing him for work. And I thought, oh, shoot. Yeah, maybe I... I just no. jumped the gun there, but no, it was. I, I confirmed afterwards uh, with with uh, his representative that it was the home address he was looking yeah. for. So yeah. there we go. Yeah, well, because he said, "Mike's Mike, what's your address?" Yeah, and don't you would he, assume he would you have mean said home, work right? address? Yeah, yeah he would have yeah. said that. Um, our theory is that he uh, is just collecting people's addresses to yeah. uh, <laughs> to just to see randomly who what random stranger will give him. The address, their address. He has done stuff like that yeah, in the past. I would not he be. He could surprised. be sending you something, but I think it's. I think it's the former. I would That's not be surprised theory. to see the yeah a list of like, hey, I got X number of people to give me their address unprompted, basically with no context. Yep, no uh, context at all. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it just it could be a social experiment. You wouldn't put it past them. Ah, oh, he's the best. I love yeah. him so much. Well, Calypso's out now. Calypso's out now, and it, it's a great book. And it, and as I said before, I wasn't uh, a, a very knowledgeable person about. David Sedaris going in, and now uh, I'm a huge fan. Do you like fiction more than nonfiction-ish? I guess we could call Sedaris nonfiction-ish. Yeah, it, it depends who's writing it. Yeah, yeah. My favorite writer uh, and favorite book is uh, *In Cold Blood*, Truman Capote. Right, right. And that's that perfect blend it, of fiction and nonfiction. Per, it's exactly so. like Sedaris. Exactly. <laughs> 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 Just as funny *In Cold Blood*. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Mike. You know what? Great, great interview. I loved that so much, and I hope that Sedaris fans and even non-fans will 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 come. We'll will get to know his work. Yeah, that was my biggest fear that Sedaris fans would hear this and say, "Oh my God, why didn't you ask him about this or that? You idiot!" So, well, you didn't I, I have hope, any time. Yeah, I, I hope. Well, I mean, yeah, you have 15 minutes, so I hope yeah. uh, I did Sedaris fans uh, justice and they enjoy it. I would say you did, Mike, for sure. Well, thank 100%. you, Gina. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you to David uh, Sedaris, of course, for his time. And to everyone listening. And we'll see you next time on Ages and Icons. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.